Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 27 and we're focusing on the end of 1977 through to early 1978. Later that year, Operation Reindeer would once again shake Southern African political leadership and cause more ripples in the global pond and also leave a legacy which Swapo continues to commemorate to this day. Just as an aside, this week I had a chance to discuss various tactics and matters with General Roland de Vries, who is one of the most important military tacticians of the South African Defence Force. He was instrumental in setting up 61 Mechanized Battalion Group. So, through the next few episodes, we'll hear his first-hand account of various action and his innovative leadership concepts. At times, I'll include the voices of those who fought on both sides, which I'm sure, or hope, you'll find informative. Remember, this is not a series that seeks to glorify war. It seeks to inform and educate those who have no idea what significant events and issues are at the heart of our recent past, and also to honour those who are no longer with us. Because, as you know, those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it, and nowhere is this more apparent than in Southern Africa. Major General Yanni Heldenhuis took command in South West Africa in September 1977, and as we've heard last episode, he arrived in the territory as the bush war morphed into a full-blown insurgency. There was consternation across the Vomberland as Swapo increased its attacks on traditional leaders and the security forces. For Geldenhuis, a major theme had developed in managing the insurgency. As you've heard, his orders were diverse, but the main idea was to keep Swapo infiltrations at a low level so that the Turnhala alliance could develop into a counter-revolution political powerhouse. That was not going to be easy. Swapo was infiltrating in sufficient numbers by late 1977 to cause the SADF severe headaches as Leopold Scholz puts it in his great book, The SADF in the Border War. In a nutshell, the major problem was initiative. Swapo was determining the pace and scale of this war, and the SADF needed to change that, and quickly. The first obvious place to begin was the concept which Colonel Jan Breitenbach had instituted to out-guerrilla the guerrilla movements using 3-2 battalion, amongst other sharp tools. Breitenbach was a pioneer in this concept, at least in the SADF. With a core of ex-FNLA troops, he was to build this unit into one of the most feared battalions probably across Africa in the post-colonial period. They were highly efficient soldiers, spoke Portuguese and other Angolan and South West African languages, and operated secretly, clandestinely. Their strength was cross-border operations in an era when Pretoria was limiting action across the Katlan, that area of cleared bush along the south of the South West African-Angolan border. Breitenbach wanted to turn southern Angola into a no-go zone for Swapo. This would knock the insurgents off balance, and he believed doing so consistently would eventually cause Swapo and its armed wing plan, or the People's Liberation Army of Namibia, to collapse psychologically. The official and secret director from the SADF HQ was to deny Swapo an area of 50 kilometers north of the border. However, by the end of 1977, it was clear that even with 3-2 battalions' incredible successes, the border was almost as porous as before, and Swapo still held the initiative. Back in Vintuk, Geldenhuis was pondering the scale of the response. In one of his reports back to SADF HQ at Voortrekker Hoogte, he warned that it would be folly to fight a protracted defensive war against an insurgency. All that would mean is the SADF would sustain casualties and eventually lose. By carrying the war to the enemy, he wrote, by inflicting disproportionately heavy casualties, the task becomes manageable. SADF units will have again to be trained in the way of their forebears. I would have liked to have spoken to Yanni Geldenhuis, but he is no more, passing away in 2018. But what he meant by the way of the forebears 
was the manner in which the Boers outfought the British during the South African War, the Anglo-Boer War. The Boers there were the guerrillas and the British the conventional soldiers. Geldenace's approach was built on Breitenbach's principle and adopted by the SADF High Command. In a document called The SADF Basic Doctrine for Counterinsurgency Rural and dated November 1977, the concept was outlined more methodically. Up to now, the SADF strategic doctrine was based on British Army tactics. Here's Roland de Vries with some background. As the uh, war was developing in Africa and elsewhere, we needed to think about operating in combat groups. Uh, at that stage, we were still uh, ardently following uh, the British doctrine from the Second World War, uh, advancing along routes with uh, vanguards and advance guards and rear guards and flanking guards, etc., etc. We knew that that could not work. So we started thinking about uh, mobile warfare. At that stage, I was already doing a lot of reading. I was reading um, uh, German concept, uh, concepts, uh, Austrian concepts, um, with regards to uh, mechanized warfare, mobile warfare as such. And then I was also studying the books uh, that was written by Guderian, um, Panzer Leader, and books that were written by people like uh, uh, Friedrich Wilhelm von, von Valentin, who I personally met later on. This obviously called for fundamental changes. Up to now, the basic defensive reaction technique meant that the insurgents could operate almost without fear in the south of Angola, despite three two battalions' attentions. That's because the SADF could not cross the border in large numbers. Freedom of action was largely the prerogative of the enemy, and the SADF had perforce to dance to their tune, as Heldenhuis pointed out. This had to change, because defensive tactics never win a war against a guerrilla insurgency, or probably against anyone. The SADF had to go over to offensive tactics to beat Swapo. The object of any future action should include the destruction of the enemy along with all their logistics and infrastructure. And it was with this in mind that the plans for what was eventually called Operation Reindeer were drawn up. In December 1977, an informal gathering of South Africa's political leadership took place at an unpretentious East London seaside cottage. It was located at the resort known as Obos, south of the city, and the cottage was owned by B.J. Forster, South Africa's Prime Minister. Writer Willem Steenkamp reports that the details of exactly what was said there are buried in secret files, but the decisions would have far-reaching effects on Southern Africa. More about this in a second. Forster, remember, was still pushing back against Boerter and Magnus Milan, who wanted to throw the diplomatic handbook out the window and invade Angola as regularly as possible. Operation Savannah had damaged Pretoria's diplomatic efforts in Africa and Milan and Boerta were of the opinion that most African nations would never support a white minority-run South Africa, and they were correct. Savannah had wrecked Forster's detente policy, but there was also no denying that the increased Swapo incursions meant the SADF had to take radical measures to cap the insurgency. In October 1977, Defence Force spokesman Major General Wally Black said there were around 300 insurgents in the operational area, and contacts and firefights between security forces and SWAPO averaged around 100 a month. That was more than three a day. The SADF also believed there were around 2,000 SWAPO insurgents in Angola and around 1,400 in Zambia. As Roland de Vries said to me, this was a corporal's war because the basic SADF patrol was usually a 10-man section led by a corporal. One of the most memorable clashes was also to take place on the 27th of October 1977. 
That's when one of these small sections led by a corporal ran into a large unit of 80 Swapo guerrillas in Avambaland late in the afternoon. The patrol was vastly outnumbered at 8 to 1, but instead of running away, the South Africans went on the offensive. The calculated risk paid off. Reinforcements were dropped by helicopter and the contact turned into a three-day-long running battle that seesawed across the cutline. At the end, 61 insurgents were dead, along with five security force members. A sixth died of his wounds a month later. Those who know the battles of World War II, or even Vietnam, and even Afghanistan, would scoff at these casualty figures, but remember this border war was low intensity. And this battle happened to be the biggest battle fought in Southwest Africa since the territory had been captured from the Germans in 1915. To put it another way, six months of casualties had taken place in 72 hours. If that wasn't an increase in the insurgency, then nothing was. As Forster and the cabinet gathered in the Obor Sea cottage, they must have noted the fact that the army was calling for more offensive action and the sounds of Swapo activity had increased. The outcome of the Cutline battle was a loss for Swapo, but SADF intelligence did not crow about it. There was no reason for jubilation. If Swapo was mobilizing so many men and women, what would happen in the next year or two? Diplomatically, the reason for Swapo's intensification made sense. South Africa had been meeting with the big five Western nations, the US, Britain, France, West Germany and Canada, to negotiate a settlement in Southwest Africa, where the SADF could then withdraw. A general election was planned, followed by independence for the territory. But these negotiations stalled for two reasons. Firstly, Pretoria refused to hand over Volfus Bay, which had been South Africa's property since the 19th century, as we've heard. Secondly, Pretoria refused to remove all SADF members before independence and wanted these to be withdrawn in a phased approach. The United Nations was not trusted by Pretoria and the UN would end up sending a military force into the territory during the period of elections. Pretoria recognized that because the UN was backing Swapo as part of its post-colonial narrative, it would obviously be anti-South African. So let's return for a moment to Obos. A plan for an operation was apparently dreamed up at this meeting. Along with Forster, Minister of Defense P.W. Boerter, Minister of Foreign Affairs Pak Boerter, Chief of the SA Defense Force Magnus Malan, and Secretary of Foreign Affairs Brandt Fourie, they were joined by the Chief of the South African Army, Constant Fulyun. The main subject of the meeting was the negotiations around Southwest Africa and how to ensure that South Africa's continued support of the Democratic Turnhala Alliance, or DTA, would win the UN-supervised elections planned for Namibia in 1978. During this meeting, Author Edward Alexander in his book The Kasinga Raid said it was decided that Swapo needed to be dealt a significant blow, a kind of sucker punch that would convince those living in Avambaland that voting for Swapo was a waste of time and dangerous. P.W. Boerter later said that political success in Avambaland depended on military success and that the SADF should strike deep into Angola to make a point. His position dominated the discussions and gained credence when the increased insurgency of the new year in 1978, forced Foster's hand. Here are a few of the incidents. On the 2nd of January 1978, a security force patrol was hit in a Swapo ambush, but two Swapo members were killed in the firefight. A couple of days later, Swapo shot dead two Avambo traditional leaders for being SADF sympathizers. Then, on January 8th, four black civilians died and six were wounded when a planned landmine detonated under their vehicle. Shortly afterwards, a security force soldier and two insurgents died in a contact. Then two more SADF troops were killed in another clash. Later in January, two more contacts killed eight insurgents and one SADF soldier. This was heavy going, 
18 cases of infiltration from Angola, but things were going to get much worse. In the first week of February, Avambo Tribal Government Minister of Health and Welfare Toivo Shiagaya was assassinated. There's a clear link between his execution by Swapo and a meeting in Vintuk on the same day, the 7th of February, where representatives of the Western Five and South African officials gathered to talk about the planned elections. A clear message was being delivered by Swapo. There would be no negotiation with South Africa, and backing the resistance movement was the United Nations. On February 10th, the Western Five gathered in New York for last chance talks on a negotiated settlement, and representing South Africa was Foreign Minister Pick Butter. Swapo leader Sam Nyoma and other movement officials were also in the American city. On the same day of the New York meeting, and just to add weight to Swapo's position, the border war escalated once more, with reports that a group of insurgents were pursued over the border and eight had been killed. On the 19th of February, the Caprivi experienced a direct assault when Swapo, based inside Zambia, crossed the border and fired an anti-tank RPG at a South African troop carrier, killing four SADF soldiers, including two middle-ranking officers. And Ovumberland was now experiencing many clashes and skirmishes. Around the same time, Swapo opened fire on a water supply point, killing two security force soldiers and losing two themselves in the follow-up operation. But the biggest shock in late February for South Africans was the abduction of a South African engineer called Sapa Johan van der Mesh in central Avambo near the cutline. He was eventually repatriated in 1982, and we'll hear more about this incident in later podcasts. But as you can see, as the diplomatic flurry accelerated, so did the war. A few days before the end of February on the 21st, a large group of planned insurgents abducted a teacher and 119 children from the St. Mary's Mission in central Avambo. This was an Anglican church only a few hundred meters south of the Cutline. Three of the children escaped and told the SADF they had been force-marched across the border and taken to a planned training camp. The Hawks in Pretoria were now itching to respond. Diplomatically, a number of things then took place which had a direct impact on both the war and future negotiations. Firstly, Sam Nuyoma was interviewed by the South African Broadcasting Corporation's Cliff Saunders, much maligned during apartheid, but his Q&A with Nuyoma caused some problems for Swapo. You see, Nuyoma was preaching the gospel of an armed resistance divorce from the idea of a democratic election. We have to try and remember, the invective of this time was dotted with us and them positions, so it was no surprise. Capitalists versus communists. When Swapo came to power in Namibia, said Nuyoma, those who were fighting with the SADF, the traitors, as he called them, would be done away with by the people. When independence came, that actually didn't happen, but that was much later. So, in February 1978, Noyoma said that Black majority rule is out. We are not fighting even for majority rule. We are fighting to seize power in Namibia for the benefit of the Namibian people. We are revolutionaries. The influence of the Cubans and their history was duly noted, the fact that they were on the ground. It was likely that Namibia would end up as a one-party socialist state. So the die was cast, at least in Pretoria's eyes. Swapo was only pretending to want democracy. What they really wanted was to dominate through terror. History is an odd educator. I was present at the Namibian peace accord signing in 1988 in the Congo capital of Brazzaville, and Swapo had changed its tune by then. Just out of interest, a little aside here, that was on the 13th of December 1988, a day before my birthday. Because the Soviet Union had collapsed and Cuba was en route out of Angola, the pressure was on Swapo in those days. 
The Cold War had fizzled out. The Berlin Wall was about to come down. The revolution was not being televised anymore by Eastern Europeans in Moscow. Noyoma and Swapo were forced to change tack at that point and pushed to the negotiation table by the Russians. And at the same time, the South Africans were pushed to the table by the Americans. But back in early 1978, Noyoma's statements were a diplomatic cannon fodder for the apartheid government. He wasn't interested in black majority rule or elections. He wanted power through the barrel of his gun. Planned guerrilla combat units infiltrated northern Avambaland from Swapo military fronts in southern Angola. In many instances, civilians were crossing the border into Angola to join Swapo and were escorted by armed planned fighters on foot. They'd first be taken to Fapla or Angolan army camps despite Fapla's denial. After the war, many first-hand accounts were documented explaining how closely the two military organizations worked, which was no surprise. This close relationship, though, was going to backfire on Fapla over the coming years. So these new Swapo interns would be rested and fed at these temporary camps while some received medication as they waited to be transported to Swapo training facilities in Angola. Then planned fighters who escorted these men and women would return to their operational areas in Avambaland. At this stage, the SAGF had cleared most people from a distance of around 10 kilometers on both sides of the border and had cut down much vegetation to improve visibility. What was the SADF to do about these insurgents and the fact that hundreds of Avambos and other people were crossing the border to join Swapo? They clearly had to deal with planned training bases, and so an intense operation was planned, which became Operation Reindeer, an event the Namibian government calls the Kasinga Massacre. There's been much debate around this attack on Kasinga, where it's thought around 612 men, women and children were killed, at least according to Swapo. Telling this story is difficult. No one agrees about anything. For the South Africans, the planned base harbored terrorists, not civilians. For Swapo, the planned base was a refugee camp full of women and children. Some say a thousand men and women and maybe as many as 300 children died. Even today, Namibians involved can't agree on exactly what happened. And even those present on the ground contradict each other. In fact, Swapo has no records of what happened there except for photographs of mass graves, and even these are debated. By the way, SADF reports were also going to be contradictory. So I'm going to try and explain Operation Reindeer's significance nevertheless, because Swapo remains the party in power in Namibia and use these sorts of events as reminders to the local population about their significance. Most citizens of Namibia were born long after this operation and are more worried these days about employment and education than they are about who did what in Kasinga in May 1978. But it's an important rallying call for a government that's been in power for 30 years and each year they wheel out survivors who tell their stories which are powerful and emotional. So back to 27th of February 1978 when Magnus Malan submitted a request to the Minister of Defence, P.W. Buta, to launch an attack on five Swapo bases in southern Angola, which at that stage was called Operation Brailov, or Bridal, as in wedding. Four of the five points of interest were between 8 and 39 kilometres inside Angola, and known as Ehek, Mulemba, Domdondola, and Chitkera, and were within a 40k radius of each other. The fifth, Kasinga, was the furthest north by far. South Africa's cabinet, including Defence Minister P.W. Buta, initially turned down the plan to attack Kasinga because it had a large number of refugees believed to be living amongst the Swapo trainees. 
Bombing and killing women and children would create problems for the apartheid government. It would be the second invasion of Angola within a couple of years following Savannah. Forster was also worried about something else. It's long ago, folks, but there was something called the information scandal going on inside South Africa. National Party supporters were using ill-gotten money to buy newspapers such as The Citizen. There was a campaign to include churches in the propaganda for apartheid post the disaster that was the Soweto uprising of 1976. Forster worried that attacking this large camp at Kasinga would provoke the international community. Chief of the Army General Constant Fulun did not take too kindly to Forster's prevarication. It has been reported that Fulun threatened to abort the whole operation into Angola if Kasinga was to be excluded from the SAD of planned attacks. This was followed up later by General Fulun sending a formal memo to Defence Minister Magnus Malan on Wednesday, the 8th of March, 1978. The title of the memo was The Role van Kasinga in the Militaire Aanslag tegen Zuidwest Afrika, or the role of Kasinga in the military onslaught against Southwest Africa. Included in this document was a list of 22 items that Fulun said proved Kasinga was a military camp and he argued aggressively to include the small town in the upcoming operation. In fact, Fulun went further, calling Kasinga the main target. There are interesting reasons provided by Fulun. Plan Commander Dimol Hamambo had his HQ in Kasinga. That was also the central point for all Swapo military operations in Southwest Africa, and that all mine-laying refresher courses were being presented at Kasinga. Kasinga, though, would stain the SADF's copybook no matter what has been said and by whom. As Colonel Jan Breitenbach wrote in his book On the Assault on Kasinga, he was there, of course, called Eagle Strike, 4 May 1978. Was it a day of glory or a day of shame? Just to add a religious spin on the attack, the 4th of May, 1978, was also Ascension Day. So, next week we'll hear about how the SADF finally approached Operation Reindeer and their attempt at killing three birds with one stone. Please rate the podcast on iTunes or your platform of choice. You can also reach me on Twitter, at Des Latham, or through my website, abwarpodcast.com. Until next, goodbye.